welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, The Restorationist, we will be visiting with Ron Bowen of Prairie Restorations. But first, Nature Revisited is pleased to have Verace as our sponsor for this edition. Verace is a clothing company that is using the latest sustainable and ethical practices in the making of their clothing. Hello guys, I am pleased to say that our brand Verace is going to be sponsoring this episode of Nature Revisited. Verace is a sustainable clothing brand that for every item purchased, we plant between 10 to 25 trees all around the world and take from two to six pounds of plastic trash from our coasts and oceans. And all of our products are vegan and ethically sourced. We want to give all the Nature Revisited listeners a 20% discount on all orders plus free shipping. So go to Verace.com. That would be V-U-R-O-C-I.com. And claim your 20% discount with the code NATURE at checkout. Thank you guys. And I hope you really enjoy this episode. Ron Bowen started Prairie Restorations in 1977. At the time, it was one of the first companies devoted exclusively to the restoration and managing of native prairie plant communities. Ron joins me to talk about the incredible importance of not just the prairie restoration, but all native plant communities, such as wetlands, woodlands, and shorelines. We're going to start back a ways, back in St. Paul, Minnesota. I understand that you grew up in a suburb there and that you saw firsthand a lot of the urban expansion that happened there. What was it like and what impact did that have on you at an early age? Well, my background was a suburb of St. Paul that had been basically gone through the typical progression of farm growth from the 1800s. And in that time frame of 90 years or so, you know, there were drastic changes to the landscape. I moved into an area that had been truck farming, uh, mostly tomatoes and vegetables and and, and it was you know pretty rural it was it was the end of an era when that part of of the suburbs of St. Paul were being converted to housing uh, my family we bought an old farm with only the farmhouse and the immediate more or less yard around it so what i saw happen before my eyes was this rapid conversion of open space to developed residential streets and sidewalks and landscapes, not native landscapes. And things changed very, very rapidly at that time. Even in 1960, they were were already highly converted, but the final touches were being put on it. I think it really had an impact on me. And it's interesting because it's actually turned the other way and the conversion has ended perhaps well not really 
And there's a restoration effort across the country to try and help offset some of that destruction, if you will. So who were some of the early influences, such as Aldo Leopold, and how did they inspire you? There were a lot of early influences. I was involved in sports and music. So the natural theme, if you will, was relatively incidental. I was lucky in that my parents, for five years, I went for two weeks at a time to a camp on the St. Croix River, which was really only about 30 miles away, but was a very strong influence of nature. There was a club there at the camp called the Beach Nuts, and the Beach Nuts were voluntarily involved in learning nature. My parents normally would take our family on a vacation to a Lake Mon Pa kind of resorts, and we'd go to one of those and spend a week. But beyond that, I think your question is is somewhat focused on people like Aldo Leopold. In later years, he became extremely important to me. I think he was the father of land ethics. This whole notion of land ethics is critical to the movement that I'm involved in. And not not just him. In more recent times, a writer named Barry Lopez, who just died a, a year and a half ago, Barry was a very strong influence. Again, there are other people. Uh, John Curtis was sort of the father of the Wisconsin Arboretum, really one of the early restorationists, I would say, along with Leopold and a number of other cohorts at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. When you went to the University of Minnesota in the 1960s, your first studies were in forestry if I'm not mistaken. Why did you choose forestry? You know, it's funny. I had a vision of forestry from even back in my grade school years. I always sort of thought I wanted to be a forester, not even really knowing what a forester is. When I entered the University of Minnesota as a freshman, it was 1965, I entered the School of Forestry because the University of Minnesota had a very renowned school of forestry, but like most, it focused on wood production, lumber. For me, hey, wait a minute, I don't really want to know a whole lot about growing lumber. I would much rather know about the ecological part of forestry. That was a little bit unusual. There were a number of us, but you know, I, I got to take a few different classes because of that. So when did you first become fascinated with prairie? And what was the culture of prairie around that time? Prairie in the, say, in the late 1950s and early 60s, prairie had already been pretty much, in Minnesota, eradicated. It was down to about 1% of its original amount and less than that in other Midwestern states. What did I know at that time? Well, turned out that I took a class at the University of Minnesota on local botany and native plants. And my professor, a professor named Gerald Ownby, took us on a couple different field trips, the whole class. Those field trips tended to focus on remnant prairies. It was very fascinating to me because I had also, as a sophomore in college, taken a job as a gardener. And I already had a family, 
and I was trying to balance school and work, and this job was highly influenced by the mother of the person I was working for, one of the Dayton family. Her name was Grace Dayton. So way back in the 50s and even late 40s and early 60s, she was gardening with native plants. I didn't know her. I'd never met her. It turned out that the native gardening was the tradition there. So I was thrown into this environment where, hey, these are native plants. These are the plants that we grow in this garden, and this is my job. And this is wonderful. What an opportunity. I had an opportunity to work with these plants in a, granted, somewhat manipulated environment. But nonetheless, the vision of that garden was to have it be highly focused on native plant communities. I say plant communities very intentionally here because one has to think about the whole community and how the pieces of that fit together and how they nurture each other. When you're talking about native plants or restoration, you really need to start on the community level. And then there are so many other nuances that need to be learned about soil mycorrhizal activity and associated insects and pollination. All that whole network is incredibly diverse. So again, I started as an interest in forestry, plant communities, and that was primarily learned by experiencing remnant examples, going to those places. So what convinced you that you wanted to go into restoration? And what were some of the roadblocks at the time? The need for restoration was very obvious. It, it remains that way today, of course. Back in the in the late 60s or even early 70s, the trend was the opposite. We're we're destroying native plant communities. We're not we're not building them as fast as we're getting rid of them. So we still have this challenge. As I, as a young juvenile, riding down a country road, going out of my suburban town into the country, and seeing remnants here and there, individual plants along the roadsides, learning about those plants. And then the next trip I might go to that same place, seeing that they've been taken away. It was pretty obvious that this was not a sustainable model. The model that we were as a society developing and living in was at some point going to run up against a brick wall. So you started Prairie Restorations in 1975. Why did you choose a business model instead of a nonprofit one? And what were some of the benefits of that choice? I think the business model comes out of a maybe a family heritage of independent business people. My grandfather was a small business owner. And I also feel that in the independent business world, there's a lot more opportunity to be creative and to to kind of make things happen that you see as being necessary. It's not a replacement for the public sector. I, the public sector is wonderful and very, very essential. So what was the mission that you had in mind when you started Prairie Restorations? And has that mission changed? 
my mission really was to provide an alternative treatment of the landscape. I think that native landscaping, restoration, if you will, is a better way. And there's great, great amounts of opportunity to do more with that, lots more. So until we achieve that goal of sort of maximizing the opportunity for restoration of native plant communities, could be a wetland, could be a prairie, could be a woodland, could be any number of plant communities. Until we really maximize the opportunity that's there, we have not completed our mission. So we have a long ways to go. As far as I know, Prairie Resto, as we call it, Prairie Resto is the oldest full-service restoration company in America. We produce materials, plants and seeds. We provide restoration management services, installation services, and we even provide a retail outlet, actually more than one. It was very obvious from the beginning that we would have to provide those materials. You sort of answered my next question, but I'm going to ask, what are some of the other services that Prairie Restorations offer? The restoration here in Minnesota or the Midwest or even the nation, if you will, should be based on what the original plant communities were. And of course, to really classify all of North America, you would have hundreds and hundreds of plant communities. Here in Minnesota, if you really are a generalist, you could say, well, look, we had prairie, wetlands, woodlands, and savannas. Now we've kind of got a script of who the actors are, and we have to find ways to put those actors back in play, in the right place. Currently, I would say the state of restoration in all of North America it would be a stretch to say that we are actually accomplishing 30 or 35% of the original members. But we still have a long ways to go to really have the complete cast of characters in a prairie or a woodland or a wetland. So the job of creating the materials for that is huge. So how complicated is land restoration? And how do you measure success? The question of success in restoration is, I think, measured by diversity. And that diversity is held up against the remnant population or the remnant plant community. A typical prairie would have had two to 250 different plant species. Some of them might have only been present with one plant, and some of them might have been present with 10,000 plants. But the total species diversity is the key, and so that's what I measure success by. If if we achieve a 75 species diversity in a project of, a, of one acre, we've done, by today's standards, we've done a good job. So in the years that you, you started propagating and restoring native plants, what are some of the changes that you have seen? You know, I, I go back to a time when site preparation was quite challenging because there were many communities or many 
areas, soil types, and so on, that were really dominated by exotic European plants and really challenging to prepare the site. We've we've come a long ways on how to do that. If it's dominated by exotic, intense plant community, it's hard to get the native plants to come into it. There are ways you can do it. If you measure time in decades instead of years, uh, you can make notable headway. So utilization of controlled burning is extremely important. Fire is a very good tool for restoration. Various no-till practices where you can do some surface preparation but not really break the ground open. Cover cropping with the right crops is also an area that needs a lot more work and study. And so sort of successional planting is a very progressive approach. So do you think that the ordinary person is starting to really realize the incredible importance of not only prairie, but of our natural landscape? That's a great question, Stefan. I think that we're at the 25 to 35 percent level of our population. Ah, that's even strong. Maybe 15 to 20 or 25. If if we're at 20 percent of the people who are concerned about that, of course, there's 80 percent who aren't. The ordinary person, no. The ordinary person is not up to that. However, that percentage is increasing quite rapidly in the last, I'm going to say, five years. And so it's encouraging. There are more and more people who realize the value of a stable plant community and its influence on everything. Why do you think there is more attention paid to restoration in the Midwest than other parts of the country? I think the Midwest is Maybe unique for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, just by chance, there were a lot of academics who came out of the University of Wisconsin in Madison. It included Alda Leopold and John Curtis and John Weaver was a, a related uh, associate from Nebraska, really is considered the father of, of the native prairie. So, you know, the people that were here and really are still here, uh, we're very influential in that. The other part of the answer, though, is for various reasons, farm fields and farmland, open land, is pretty conducive to prairie restoration. I use this kind of corny analogy that in the landscape has its own momentum. The landscape wants to be certain things. And we, as people, often want it to be something different. Well, that creates some challenges. The, the more remote from what it was, the more challenging it is to accomplish, and probably the less successful that you're going to be in the long run. In other words, if you took a forested area in Ohio and you tried to put a prairie in that, could you accomplish that? The answer is yes. You probably could, but the momentum of that site is that it wants to be a woods. And so it's going to want to restore itself to woods. And so in some ways, you're better off to look at what was there pre-settlement and go back to that. 
let it be that. Don't fight it. So here in the Midwest, prairie was was the obvious. Much of the Midwest, as you know, was prairie. And in some ways, there have been a lot of, of days or times where in our work as restorationists, when it's been you know, very challenging and discouraging, it's been easy to fall back on the fact that if nothing else, this little area that we're planting to prairie will be a nucleus of material that can then spread re-prairie, if you will. At least you've got that nucleus of material there. Again, left to its own devices, it would mostly be successful. And that is because the plants that basically evolved in the prairie are best suited to the prairie. And so ultimately, there's a drought or there's a flood or there's there's some event, fire is a very typical, that favor those plants over the exotic plants. I've had a lot of years of experience. And, you know, when you look at something like reed canary grass, in a wetland, are the odds ever going to happen that repopulated by sedges and rushes and native wetland plants? I think the answer is yes, but I think the answer has to include the condition that you have to be very patient. How do you see our connection to the land ethic changing And how is that connected to the future of prairie restoration? Do you think those two things are starting to come together? I do think they're coming together. I think the progress has been very slow. The development of the land ethic, going back to Leopold, has been disappointing in in that it, it seems so obvious, and yet it's taken far longer than I wish it did. Nonetheless, I do think it's occurring. Unfortunately, it's a result of a more and more greater need, a desperation. And so as things get rarer, they become more precious. And it's taken this long, all the way from back in the 40s or even late 30s. And as I said um, earlier, I think we're only at 20, 25% of people who are really concerned, who are really concerned enough to do anything about it. It's taken a long time for us to get incentivized enough so that people are wanting to convert their landscapes, add to the health of the landscape, and not take away from it. It is happening. Is it quick enough? I don't know. I think although Leopold would probably be quite disappointed that it hasn't been more obvious and more determined. I think it is picking up some momentum. You know, when I started 50 years ago, we were almost the only business around. In that 50 years, now there are hundreds of businesses who are trying to help the problem, providing seed or plants or services. So that's encouraging. This industry desperately needs research and development. It needs the power of capital to employ people to research and learn and understand really what the challenges are and how to solve them. Until we get to that point, I don't think we're anywhere close to that right now. 
this has a direct connection to formal education. Where really are we teaching restoration? I have yet to really see an academic institution, and I hope somebody's listening that comes back to me and tells me how wrong I am, but I've yet to really see an academic institution that's teaching uh, restoration as a profession, as a springboard to the business of restoration. So I think that's got miles to go. So what are some of the other significant ways we can all help increase global plant diversity? The diversity question, again, I think is paramount to almost everything. So certainly people who are doing even a small bit, I consider almost anything smaller than a football field to be a garden. Bigger than a football field, okay, now you're really doing a plant community restoration. That said, a small space, even a six-foot by six-foot patch of restoration in a home landscape is very significant. If they do that and their neighbor does that and their neighbor does that, pretty quick it starts to add up. And one would hope that at this point in our history, shooting for 25% of your landscape would be significant. And if you string it together with the neighbor and the neighbor and the neighbor, then you can really have an influence on population dynamics, not just of birds or insects that are generally fairly mobile, but plants. Plants also need corridors and linkage, if you will, so that their gene pools can remain healthy and so that they can move over a period of time. The migration of plants and the the genetics of the plants If you take a relatively rare plant that's dependent on a specific pollinator and that pollinator is taken out and that plant is no longer getting pollinated, there might only have been 10 individuals on a football field. There might have been very low population naturally. Now you take away the pollination, eventually the adult plants, even if they live to be 100, eventually they die. So I think that's a huge factor. I think that's going on right now. We're seeing a whole lot of our prairie species are becoming more and more dominated by self-pollinated methods. And so the plants that really rely on insects are fading. The plants that self-pollinate like grasses are mostly increasing. And so... Groups like the Nature Conservancy are very concerned about this. In fact, many people are. I want to say one more thing. The need for restoration is truly a function of need. And you could even say it's a function of desperation. As we learn more, we understand that the essential critical mission here is really something that we can't fail at. If we do, eventually there will be a huge, huge price to pay. And I don't think it will be sustainable, that our society will not be sustainable. The world as we know it will not be sustainable. So, you know, again, we learn as we go, we learn more and more. And this is another great example of ignorance is bliss, 
if we didn't look at things and think about it, if we didn't listen to Alden Leopold and develop some sort of concern about the environment, a land ethic, if you will, we probably wouldn't know any better. We'd just blunder along. But that's not the case. We do learn. We do see. We understand there's consequences. And so as we learn even more about that and more of us learn about that, then we're more determined to try and solve it. It's a huge challenge. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ron Bowen. And if you want to learn more about the work he is doing, visit prairieresto.com. Nature Revisited would like to thank Faraci for sponsoring this edition. The music is When Doves Cry by Prince. I hope you will share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Or on our website, nordenproductions.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature.